This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. This episode of The Secret Library podcast is brought to you by Scrivener. Get 20% off the desktop software by using the code SECRET at literatureandlatte.com. Welcome to episode 44. My guest today is Susan Orlean. How, do, how does one introduce Susan Orlean? I think for those of you who live in the U.S., you probably know who Susan Orlean is. But for the benefit of anyone listening from outside the U.S., she studied, I'm going to quote from her, she studied literature and history and always dreamed of being a writer, but had no idea of how you went about being a writer, at least the kind of writer she wanted to be, someone who wrote long stories about interesting things rather than news stories about short-lived things. There's no guidebook to becoming that kind of writer, so she assumed she'd end up doing something practical like going to law school, much as the thought of it made her cringe. After college, she moved to Portland, Oregon, back when Portland was cappuccino-free, to kill some time before the inevitable trek to law school. And amazingly enough, she lucked into a writing job at a tiny, now-defunct monthly magazine. That led to a job in an alternative news weekly in Portland where she wrote music reviews and feature pieces. And while she was in Portland, Mount St. Helens erupted. She wrote for Rolling Stone and The Village Voice. She learned to cross-country ski. She failed to learn how to cook. She moved to Boston in 1982. She wrote for the Boston Phoenix and the Boston Globe. She started work on her first book, Saturday Night. She then moved to New York a few years later, and after moving to New York, she learned how to snowboard, wrote The Orchid Thief, and became a staff writer at The New Yorker. So this is how her career has unfolded. And Susan has written many books since then. Most of us know The Orchid Thief. And she um, still worries for The New Yorker. She's been a, a career staff writer there. So it was such an honor to speak with her and to learn from her experiences. And I know everyone is going to get so much out of listening to Susan. Before we start the show, I wanted to share with you all that I have an opportunity available for 12 people at the moment. I am opening the Coffee Shop Writers Group, which is a six-month program, which will help you to set writing goals and find support both through the community as well as encouragement and coaching I provide along with guest experts. You can check out the program at carolinedonahue.com slash coffee shop. And as a special thank you to podcast listeners, the code SLPODCAST, all one word, will get you 15% off your first month's membership payment. That offer is good through April 1st. So this is no April Fool's joke, but I hope to see you in the group. And now let's get on to Susan. Hi, Susan. Thanks so much for coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure to talk to you. So you were um, one of the contributors in Mangela Martin's book, and I was really fascinated by the conversation that kind of was going on in that book about the idea of what's happening with writing now as a profession. And I think given that you have bridged the kind of newspapers to New Yorker to books. I'm, I'm interested in what you're seeing right now around being a writer, because I loved the concept you talked about in the book about writing being a small business. So I'm wondering if you could say a little more about that. Well, sure. And I, I will begin by saying I think it's always been uh, necessary for people in the creative world to also know how to run their company, namely their, their business. So that, that hasn't changed, but 
I do think it's become increasingly the case in the world we're in now. One thing I think that's kind of true about the writing and publishing world right now is it's never been easier to get published, but it's also probably never been harder to get paid. And those two things are directly related to the rise of the internet and websites and the growing number of places that are looking to be filled with content, but the new notion that you don't pay for content, which is a really scary development if you are somebody who is a content producer, which is what I like to think of myself as when I'm in that mood of wanting to feel very practical. It's, I think you need to be kind of smart about how you present yourself in this world as a writer more than ever because the chance of you being employed full-time as a as a normal salaried employee is probably slimmer than it, it ever has been. You know, more and more publications are, are using freelancers because it's just much more cost-efficient for them. So if you're going to work as a freelancer and you don't have as your hope or goal the idea of being taken care of as an employee, you, you do have to be smart about it and you have to be careful and you have to accept the fact that you, you've got to be a business person and, and be wise about promoting yourself, about being paid fairly, about taking care of your business in a smart way and, and, uh, advancing it in a smart way. It's weird because, you know, it, it maybe is something that makes you shudder to think, Oh no, I'm an artist. I don't want to think about that. But that's just silly. That's just foolish. Uh, I, I mean, if you are in a position to hire a business manager, that's great. Then you don't have to think about it. Otherwise, you do have to think about it. And while it may not come naturally to you, um, which is makes perfect sense, you need to learn how to do it and, and get smart about it because you're going to most likely, if you want to be a writer, you're going to be running your business for the duration of your career. It's, there's a very good chance that you will never be an employee in the traditional sense of someone taking care of you. Yeah. That's not only true in the world of writing, by the way. I think that we're, we're kind of entering the, the Uberized world where we're more and more becoming independent contractors in our lives and not employees. So this is not only true for writers, but I think it's increasingly true just for, for all of us. I think you're right. I think you're totally right. I have two questions based on what you just said. One is that I loved the the fact that you said uh, the night we met that you'd taken a lot of your your life inspiration from the Vikings. Yeah. Um, so I wondered if you could share you could share that concept because in some ways I think that is helpful in today's today's experience where you kind of have to really go for it if you're gonna if you're gonna take a risk and write. Right. Well, this was an incredibly revelatory 
realization for me because I've certainly lived by this, but having it brought um, into sharp focus with this analogy really made it make sense to me. Apparently, when the Vikings went to conquer a city, they would arrive in the city and then burn their boats. The point of it was to basically say, we're here for real. There's no turning back. There's no escape route. There's no fallback. We, we are doing this. And yeah, it's a pretty scary thing to basically throw your entire lot in with a, an aspiration. I think in terms of taking on a creative enterprise, like being a writer, you have to do that. You have to throw your entire lot in and say, I'm really doing this. Now, you may not be able to stick it out. It may not work out. But at least initially, you have to go all in. And I've seen so many people who take, I mean, I'm not saying it's easy, by the way. I'm very aware that this is financially and emotionally a big challenge. But I have just seen too many people who take a job that they don't really like, but that pays the bills with the intention, they say, of writing also. And that's just a recipe for the writing never to happen. So eventually, you you go the comfortable route, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But the fact is, you never really gave it a try. It's not a job that lends itself nicely to being done uh, after hours. Now, that being said, this is not advice that I would really say is 100% accurate if it comes to being a fiction writer. I think that's a really different universe and one that I can't really speak to absolutely. But I, I do think if you want to write nonfiction and you want to really be have it be a profession, not a hobby, but a, a profession, there is a point where you simply have to say, I'm giving it my all, I'm... I'm just throwing myself into this and maybe I'll give myself a deadline and say either it works by, you know, in a, a year from now, uh, if, I, if I'm not able to support myself doing it, I, I, I won't continue. But I just think you've got to take a position of burning your ships and saying, this is what I do. This is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to be employed and give it your all. Yeah. So with that in mind, my other question is, given what you said before about which I agree with, which is it's never been easier to get published, but it's never been harder to get paid. Is there any value in trying to get some things published for free? Because there is this attitude out there of like, oh, you should be grateful we're publishing your stuff, you know, in certain venues. Mm -hmm. And exposure is worth just as much as money, which is fine if you already have a bunch of money sitting around. Right. So how would you suggest someone go about it now since, as you talked about, 
um, as you've talked about, you know, going and getting a job at a small paper is a great way to start if there are small papers. But since we right, don't right. have so many of them now, how would you navigate this landscape as it is today? I think that's a great question. Um, I, I think that the best way to approach this is to figure out a, a set of rules for how and what you do. So if you're asked to publish something for free, it's not always wrong to do that. What you need to do is think through what the non-monetary benefits are. Is it something in a publication that is so prestigious that it will be to your advantage to appear in it even for free? Then in a sense, you're getting paid you're getting paid by adding to your clips. Is it really fun? I think that's a worthy reason to choose to do something. Will it be something that is so appealing to you that it might result <clears throat> in a really terrific clip that will be great for you to have in your portfolio, even though you didn't get paid for it? Then that's a good reason to do it? Can it expose you to people who will then be useful in terms of getting better paid work? Then it's a great thing to do. So the, I don't think the blanket rule is don't ever write for free. Although I would say don't ever write for free until you examine very carefully the the benefits to you and and whether it's truly worth it, whether you are being paid in some way um, other than cash. I, I, I just think you have to be very careful. There's a way you can get used to being paid for free. And I know that's, or rather writing for free. I know that sounds weird. But one huge piece of becoming a writer is giving yourself the chance to feel valued and to feel entitled to say I'm a writer and my work is worth something. So the disadvantage of writing for free is that it doesn't, unless you can write for free in a really prestigious publication and look at it with pride and say, wow, I got an op-ed piece in the New York times or some equivalent you have to um, make sure that it's adding to your sense of value and your sense of yourself as a writer, which is a really difficult thing to achieve when you're getting started. You know, I re I'll never forget asking, feeling really self-conscious uh, when I first began as a writer filing my taxes. And in the little slot on your tax returns, that says profession, I didn't feel entitled to say I was a writer. And finally, I said to my accountant, what should I say? And he said, well, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a writer. He said, well, then put down your writer. It was remarkably difficult to do that because I think none of us quite feels entitled to declare that we're a writer until somehow the world around us has, has told us that we're a writer. So you have to make sure, help yourself in that way and make sure that you're doing things that build your sense of yourself as a worthy 
legitimate professional and not just somebody who's kind of noodling around. And I, I can't tell you the number of people I meet who say very bashfully and sheepishly that they're writers. And I think, well, if you're a writer, you should kind of learn to really feel comfortable identifying yourself that way. And I, I know, again, I know that's not easy, but since it's not easy, you have to make sure you don't do things that feed into your self-doubt. You need to do the things that feed into your sense of legitimacy. Absolutely. I, I, it, it, it does amaze me that there's something about creative fields in particular that people have such a hard time saying that they do it. But I don't know anyone who's a lawyer who says, well, you know, I practice a little law. I'm not sure if I'm really a lawyer yet. Right. You right. know? Right. Yeah, exactly. So in because that is such a, a crazy and actually very defeating attitude, you, you need to make sure you're not doing the kinds of things that add to that sense of illegitimacy. You've got to do the things that make you feel like, yeah, yeah, I'm a writer. I mean, I completely understand why it's hard to do that, but you, you cannot contribute to it yourself. And I think writing for free, unfortunately, is exactly the kind of thing that makes you feel not like a writer and not entitled to say that you are. Absolutely. So your trajectory, you started out of college at a little newspaper and then ended up getting to be a staff writer at The New Yorker uh, among publishing books. So, and, and that's like a publication that people put under their pillow at night and dream one day of writing for that. So how was that? How did that process unfold? I realize that's not six months of process that happened, but what was kind of the path that you took to get from the beginning out of college to The New Yorker? As you said, I uh, had been writing for a, a small newspaper in Portland, Oregon. From there, I was worked for uh, an alternative news weekly in Boston and had begun freelancing. And I think the, the most important thing is that I began writing stories that in my mind seemed like New Yorker stories. I also was reading The New Yorker avidly, which I think is a an incredibly important part of that, which was that I was familiar with with the magazine enough to know the the tone and spirit of the kind of work they ran. But the final piece of it was pretty much a matter of serendipity. I was living in New York at that point. I was actually working on my first book. And I I didn't know anyone that the New Yorker, I, I didn't know how to approach them because they're, they don't have a masthead. They're not easy to, to figure out in that way. And I happened to overhear a friend mention to another friend that the New Yorker was looking for new people to write the talk of the town. So hearing that was a, a, a real important moment because the idea that they were actually open to meeting new people and looking at clips was a very um, uh, significant fact for me. So I did the very simple, straightforward thing of 
putting together my clips and marching down to the New Yorker offices and, and dropping them off. Um, looking back on it now, I feel like it was remarkably naive, but maybe there was an advantage to it being done in such a naive way, which was, I simply did, I didn't overthink it. I, I took my clips and said, what do you think? Can I write for you? To my surprise then, because after I dropped them off, I think the naivete struck me. (laughs) (laughs) What on earth have I just done? But uh, the amazing fact of it is that the New Yorker, certainly back then, and I think it's still pretty much true, did look at clips that came in over the transom. And I had my clips. I was pretty clear about why my writing fit in, in the tradition of the New Yorker. And I got a call that day from the editor saying, come on down, let's talk, which really was amazing. The same day. Yeah, actually it was the same day, which was even more amazing. And I went and met him the next day and came in with a list of about 20 story ideas and said, I I really want to do this, and I feel like I know what a Talk of the Town story is, and give me a shot. And he said, all right, give it a try. Let's see what happens. So I went out pretty immediately and did the story that he liked the most. That was how it all happened. So I guess the lesson in this is that sometimes... It's just a simple matter of getting yourself in front of the person who's, who makes decisions about who writes for a publication. I'm not saying it works every time or that it's easy or that they're always going to be wide open, but there's also just the simple fact that publications are always actually looking, if, if you're the right person, there's always room for you, not necessarily for a full-time job. That's not at all what I mean. But if you, if you zeroed in on a place that's really the right place for you, they're, they're going to know it and you're going to know it. And while it may not happen immediately, um, I, I truly believe that it's a meritocratic business and that while there may be people who get in the door because someone knows someone, if you're really good and you're really the right fit, you're going to also find your way in the door. Yeah. Well, I have I have two thoughts. One is that, you know, you didn't go in and say, hey, let me write this. I have no clips. I have no evidence that you were prepared to present them with something that supported your claim. So I think right. people right. need to take the time to do that work. And the other thing is... Did you, do you feel that you were reading The New Yorker because it's The New Yorker? Or was there something in you that felt like, hmm, my natural voice really kind of meshes with them? I guess my question is, how much did The New Yorker shape you? And how much was The New Yorker just the right fit already? Uh, I think it's kind of hard to separate those two things. I think I already had a particular instinct for the kind of stories I wanted to write. And then I became familiar with The New Yorker and it was really a revelation because I thought, oh my God, this is, this is it. This is what I had in mind. This was the, what I thought about when I thought about becoming a writer. 
and then certainly reading it and it, it was very inspiring and encouraging to see that the, this notion that I had of the kind of work I wanted to do did really exist and, and did have a, a real market, so to speak, and, and was appreciated and embraced. Yeah, absolutely. Because I assume earlier on, like working in newspapers, you're not able to do the kind of long form work that the New Yorker supports. So was it kind of like, oh, now I get more room to write longer pieces with more time and more research? Was that part of the the dream that you had? Well, you know, I never really work for newspapers. So um, just to correct that oh, yeah. perception, uh, the, the work I did for newspapers was always features. They were always long stories. I never did normal everyday news reporting. Got so, it. you know, I skipped that step. Um, I think it's a, it's a great, it, it never interested me. I was never, it just never appealed to me as the kind of work I wanted to do. So I didn't go after those jobs and I never had one. I was published in newspapers, but they were always more of the long form feature stuff. So it wasn't that different. Certainly the length and breadth of what the New Yorker is interested in is the ultimate example of that. But in that same way, I felt like I was already doing that kind of work so that my clips were consistent with what I was asking to do. Now, you might say, well, how can I get to do those kinds of stories in order to have the clips to use to get, you know, it's it's like I remember when I was younger and I wanted to be a waitress and everywhere I went, they said, well, you have to have experience. And I said, well, how can I get experience if you won't hire me? Exactly. And, you know, it's sort of a round uh, circular logic. And there is a little bit of a, an issue with that. And I am frequently approached by people who do pretty standard newspaper kind of spot news who say to me, you know, I really want to write for the New Yorker and these are my clips and the clips are all very short and very topical. And it's tough if that's what you've got to show. So, so then, you know, you think, all right, well then what do you do? Well, you've got to figure out some way to, if you've got a job at a newspaper and it's limited in terms of space well, then you've got to try to do work that will demonstrate that if you were given space, the story would evolve in such and such a fashion. You've just got to figure out how to make up for that fact, because I do think it's really hard to take newspaper clips and show them to a magazine and have it translate. You know, I think that there's, there's a very natural feeling of, yeah, you're a fine newspaper reporter, but that's not what we do here. Right. Maybe this is one instance in which the, the writing for free for a publication that would make more room for something like that might be applicable. Right, exactly. Um, and that's where you have to be sort of strategic and smart and think, well, I really need a clip that's longer because I need to show that I can that I can do that. And 
if I can't do it for my normal employer, then let me figure out how I can do it somewhere and have it published. So yes, I agree. I think it's a, a perfect example of when you can write for free or for a minimal amount of money and have it be worthwhile. I want to pause and take a moment to talk about our sponsor, Scribner. So anyone who's read Susan Orlean's work knows how much detail she brings to her writing. There are shopping lists, things that people keep in their grocery cart, moments, colors, everything, all the things you need to remember, as well as historical details, background, every moment that happened going into researching the piece. So if you want to write something more in-depth that involves a lot of research, a lot of background, and a lot of memory (laughs) that you have to keep in your head. Um, Keeping those notes somewhere is really helpful when you're going through the writing process. Thankfully, Scrivener has containers that hold these notes and research and background checks and and links and all of the things you may want to reach out for when you're writing. You can check out the software at literatureandlatte.com and get 20% off the desktop version with the code SECRET. Now let's get back to Susan. So I want to talk a little bit about books because, so you've been written, you know, feature articles, and then how do you differentiate? Because you're getting these ideas all the time, I presume. If you're going into the talk of the town, you've got 20 ideas lined up, ready to go. How do you know when you've got a book versus you know, an in-depth article. It's hard to say that you ever know. Mm. And the fact is that it may be simply a matter of how passionate you are about the idea. I would say that none of my book ideas immediately scream out book. It's just that I felt really passionate and thought, I want to tell more of this story. I think then you can use a little bit of and I won't say common sense, but you can you can use a certain amount of logic to say, hmm, all right, this is a subject that maybe there would be an audience because there are lots of people who are interested in this, or this would be easy to promote because, you know, think it through. I mean, you have your own passion, which is great, and I happen to think is the most important thing, but is it a book idea? Well, think about it. Is it a book you would buy? Is it, do you think it's a subject that could sustain 300 pages? Believe me, at some point you're going to think it's a horrible idea. So you better, <laughs> you better be sure that at least in the beginning you think, oh my God, absolutely. It could use 20,000 pages. It's such a great idea. But I don't think any idea is a clearly a book versus not and I think then it it you have to measure your your commitment to your to it your excitement and and then just on a very like boring practical level can you persuade someone else namely a publisher and then furthermore a reading public that this is a book that this that they will want to spend a lot of time and 30 bucks reading what you have to say about this particular subject. So how was it for you when you published your first book because obviously it's been a while since then but you're still publishing books so it was clearly a process that you enjoy as much even if it's different than than writing articles. 
Well, it's, it's so different to write a book because it's really your own project. You know, obviously your publisher is in it with you, but you're really on your own. You can really take it in any direction you want. It's a very exciting feeling to have that kind of control. On the other hand, it's it's very scary. It's really hard to sustain an idea for 300 pages. There's not an easy, obvious template that you can look to and say, oh, okay, so this is how you write a book. You start, <laughs> you start here. Magazine stories, well, there's not a template. You can certainly look at many examples and get a pretty good roadmap for how to lay out the structure of a, of a magazine piece. With a book, it's just so much harder. They complement each other well. I think some people just naturally gravitate toward doing a book. I, I think I've liked going back and forth, and, and I appreciate the, the benefit of each because they, they truly are so different. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're different in terms of it almost feels to me like there's just a much longer bridge from one side to the other with a book versus like you can kind of see the other side with an article maybe a little right. bit easier. Right. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's just emotionally it's it's much more challenging to do a book because um, you're really alone with it for a very long time. It's it's really hard to it's hard to do. It's hard to keep yourself on a schedule. And and then uh, when you finally finish the book, you really don't know what the outcome is going to be in terms of the reception and the public. So that's a, a part of it that if you're publishing in a magazine, you don't have to worry about it. it, it you don't have to think, well, is anyone going to buy it? Is it going to get poorly reviewed? That doesn't happen. Uh, you write a magazine piece and you don't have any of the concern about what comes after. But in the case of a book, some of the worry begins the minute you turn the book in. That's true. I never thought of it that way. But yes, of course, people are subscribed to the magazine. You know, people are going to see it. And with a book, who knows? Oh, yeah. I mean, you really have no idea. And that's a very emotional part of it that you have no control over it. Um, the rewards are greater, but the the downside is also greater. Yeah. I want to ask you a little bit about your research process. I mean, I know when you've written articles, there the level of detail that you bring to the pieces that you write is amazing to me. And I have this vision, even though I know you spend, you know, a long time in places when you're going to write about them, the specificity of I'm thinking of a piece you wrote in my kind of place about the grocery store, the sunshine hmm. grocery store, and mm -hmm. how what everybody had in their cart and as a psychological kind of perspective on each person. I mean, is your arm falling off? Do you know shorthand? I'm just curious. I'm like, <laughs> how is she getting all this detail down? Uh, well, the single most important thing is I pay attention. I think we've begun to forget that the human mind is a lovely device, a, a very functional platform for gathering information, and that paying attention and observing is the single most important part of it. 
then devising a method of, of keeping track of what you're observing so that you can comfortably recreate it comes second. For me, I'm a person who takes notes by hand. I have a very mongrel version of, I wouldn't call it shorthand. It's just my own abbreviated way of, of scribbling notes and putting down a few really important details so that when I sit down to write up my notes, they help just help me recall everything else I saw that I didn't put down. The fact is the more you can truly be in a moment and really be paying attention, we're pretty good at remembering that stuff. And that's something that we, we've kind of come to forget, which is just how much the power of observation is essential in, in this process. So I just try to do that as, as best I can. And, and then I use my miserable scribblings to, <laughs> to back me up. And, and then generally I type up notes at the end of the day as well so that I can add in the things that I have in my mind that I didn't manage to get down on the page. When I'm writing for The New Yorker, I'm going to then be rigorously fact-checked. So I need it all in a, a form in my notes, or it has to be a fact that can be confirmed by a fact-checker. So while this may sound kind of wifty and, and by saying that I'm relying a lot on my memory, the fact is that it has to all be verifiable so you need to know your limits. If you don't have a good memory or you don't have a good way of jogging your memory and putting those notes down, then, then you shouldn't, then you should take more detailed notes. I don't use a tape recorder because I feel I don't pay as much attention when I am using a tape recorder. And a lot of the things that are become very important to me, they don't have an audio component. It's observing. It's gestures, it's contents of shopping carts, that, that's not going to be something that'll show up on a tape. It seems like there's this ability, and I guess as you're taking notes and if, as you're spending time, that you're able to find the detail that kind of sums up the experience of a place. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that's what being a writer is. We're not cataloging. Um, and that story is a, a good one to look at because on one hand, I very, very overtly did lots of lists in that story. And it was kind of a, a little private riff on a grocery store experience, which is basically one of having a list. That's what we all do when we go to the grocery store. Yeah. But we, we look to writers for a, a mediated experience of reality. We, we, it would be of no value for me or to take the equivalent of a, of a camera and just set it up for 24 hours in a grocery store. I, I don't think you would come away thinking that you felt you understood in some deeper way or some, some thematic way what the value of the experience was. The writing, the thing that lifts it into another level is for the writer to to take in the information and order it and prioritize it 
to lead you to some deeper understanding that that isn't merely a cataloging of factual details. And to me, that's what it's about. The, the facts are, are really important, but you need the right facts to make it make sense. So think of the, the way we describe people. You wouldn't begin by saying um, it's a human being, the gender is female, the height is, that's not how you describe people. You might say, oh, I met someone last night. She's just an incredibly lively, foul-mouthed, funny, cute person Mm -hmm. with a, a curly ponytail. And you begin resolving the massive details into the salient details. And that's what writing is. It's, it's just, how do you tell a story in a way that's efficient and, and means so much more than the full cataloging of details? That, that's where meaning comes from. And the writer is there to provide the, to lead you to that rather than simply cataloging what has been seen. And I think what's great about it is that particularly going back to the the Sunshine Grocery, is that, you know, we all go in grocery stores all the time, but we don't think about the story going on under the surface. And there might be somebody who's made it his life's work and he's training somebody else and that there's this whole thing going on underneath that we never would have found in something very everyday. That's why I love the challenge of writing about something that's very ordinary because, you know, to begin with, people might look at it and think, why would I want to read about groceries? I know grocery stores. I go there all the time. But that's my my great pleasure because I think, well, you know, you you go there all the time, but have you ever really thought about how they operate or what it's like to be there all day long? And to me, the the great pleasure is it's really fun to write about something very exotic that other people don't have a chance to experience. And I've done that as well. But I am so often drawn to writing about something that's so familiar that you can't imagine that you don't know everything about it. And yet the great surprise is you actually don't know anything about it. And, and it's even more surprising because you think you do. I'm a perfect example of that. I, if you would ask me, I would have said, well, Sure, I know what a grocery store is like. But what happened was one day I thought, God, how do they even operate? How do mm-hmm. they even know what, what goes on in a grocery store? And it just got me thinking that, God, this is so familiar. What could be more familiar? Everybody goes to the grocery store. And yet I had never thought for a minute about how complex they are and how I I, I couldn't quite imagine how they they just functioned. And then, of course, the story itself became also a story of the individuals who were there and, and their stories were uniquely interesting because of all sorts of matters of upward mobility and, and the sociology of the neighborhood. And it just became so rich and interesting to me that I, I, I couldn't believe that I had initially thought, eh, grocery stores, you know, whatever. It's like, I'm there every day. What's there to say about a grocery store? Exactly. 
Well, I want to close by by asking, um, how much time did it take you and, and how do you kind of bridge the gap? Like you're doing a story and clearly you spend a ton of time there because you can hear in your stories like, well, I stopped by this time and I met up with these people at this point. Like on average, how long are you spending with these places before you get to that depth of, wow, I didn't even know what was going on here? It really depends. Uh, are you talking about a magazine? Yeah, I think magazine piece. Obviously, a book is going to be much longer. but Right, exactly. Uh, well, uh, let's use the grocery store as an example. I, I ended up going there almost every day for, for several weeks. It felt like I really needed to explore each aspect of it and spend a whole day uh, hanging around with the meat department and and just watching it over the course of a fair amount of time. I probably didn't go every single day, but I was going very regularly for several weeks. I think I used to think it was six weeks, but now I'm not quite sure it was actually six. But it was, it was a, a good long time, mm-hmm. let's say a month to be sort of conservative. And, and there was a point where I thought, okay, I'm ready to write. Uh, the New Yorker really lets us determine how much time we need ourselves. And often there's a point where you think, okay, I'm, I'm ready, which is a, a good way to go about it. Um, because obviously I could still be there. <laughs> Every day there's something new happening. There's constantly there are changes constantly, but there, there's a point where you just have to say, okay, I have enough now to tell the story confidently. And, and then the writing of that particular piece probably took about two weeks estimating. That's, I think that's so helpful. Cause I think it's like, you look at something like that and you're like, oh my goodness, clearly, I mean, was it six months? Was it, you know, how long was right. it? So I think it helps to, to have that depth just so people can get an experience. But I, yeah, and I also want to say that it is possible as well to do a story that's really deep that you aren't there for six weeks. And I think it can be a little discouraging to people to think, well, I'll never be given six weeks on a story or I can't afford to spend six weeks on a freelance piece that I'm only being paid X amount for. Time is a... a a wonderful asset, but I've done stories where I did not have that amount of time and I uh, had to try to speed up my my absorption of, of the atmosphere. I also, in those cases, tried to focus the story a little bit more. I mean, the thing with the grocery stores, it had a very wide cast it had a large cast of people who I was writing about. I think when you have less time, then the smarter thing to do is to start focusing in on fewer people so that you can have a deep sense of them, even though you only have a short amount of time, or you report around them as much as possible. So don't I just don't want people to feel that you can only do a really rich piece if you have a huge amount of time because you you can work around that. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so many of your stories have been while traveling, and I doubt they were like, we'll put you up in a hotel for six weeks while you, right, right, you get to exactly. know this space. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a, it's a really different challenge. And sometimes, I mean, it used to make me really nervous thinking, oh, my God, I'm especially if it was a, a, a long trip that I knew that I really couldn't go back a second time, that it just in, in, in practical terms, I had one shot. And I would really be nervous thinking, oh, my God, what, you know, how can I do this on one trip? And you can, you, you know, and I think it was a good thing for me to remind myself that, no, I don't need to be able to go back 20 times. You approach it differently. You write a little bit differently. But unlimited time is is a wonderful benefit, but it's not a necessity. Yeah, I think that's really important. Well, speaking of unlimited time, I don't want to keep you on here forever, even though um, I could keep talking to you, I think, for quite a long time about this. But I'm so grateful to you for taking the time and and sharing all of this. I know people are really going to benefit. Oh, it's my pleasure. And it's it's, really, um, I think writers deserve to talk to each other as much as they can about the life of being a writer, because most of us are kind of doing it on our own and there's not a, a, a rule book that tells you how and what to do. So as much as we can help each other, the better. Definitely. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Great to talk to you, Caroline. Thank you for listening to the secret library podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading.